Our theme this week is uh, we're talking about being rooted. And it's based upon a passage that you'll find in the book of Colossians. And uh, they may be putting that up on the screen. Colossians chapter 2. And there it talks about As you therefore, having received Jesus Christ, the Lord, so walk in Him. We'll talk about walking tonight. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So our theme is really being rooted in Christ. And being rooted is important. You want your roots down deep because if the, uh, the roots of a plant are not down deep, a windy day can blow it away. And there are some storms coming. I always like to begin with an amazing fact. I was wondering what was one of the worst storms in history. And it so happens that it's modern time. November 11, 1970, I remember this. They had the Bahola Cyclone in Bangladesh. It produced a devastating 20 to 30 foot high storm surge. As a result, the massive flooding killed somewhere between 300 and 500,000 people. They were all in the low-lying regions. There was one town, Tazamudan, had 167,000 people. 45% of the population was wiped out. You can even fathom that. And we've certainly had our share of storms recently, just in the last couple of months. Not counting what's happened around the world, just in North America, we've had a couple of record-breaking storms. The hurricanes, of course, Maria and Harvey and a few years ago, Katrina. You out here may not know. I, I'm amazed. I look at the news sometimes and it seems like politics fills the news. And there was only a few fleeting stories that talked about what just happened in California where we had record fires, 5,000 homes were burned. Two of our church members in uh, Granite Bay, it's a suburb of Sacramento, had their homes burned up. And one of our church members had 21 family members in their home because they'd been evacuated from the fires. A lot of people had to leave with just, they had 90 seconds warning. What would you take? You know, I've asked people before, if you had 90 seconds to get something out of your house, what would you grab? What about your kids? Wouldn't that be first? People say, I want pictures of the kids. I say, what about the kids? <laughs> I mean, I'd start there. <laughs> it was amazing to me how many people, first thing they went for was their pets. I mean, I can understand that, but hopefully they didn't have any kids if they were thinking like that. But uh, yeah, these folks really, some of our families, they just lost everything. I uh, talked to one family, a lady used to be secretary for Joe Cruz many years ago, 30 years ago, and uh, she and her husband passed her for 64 years worth of sermon notes. He, he kept them the old-fashioned way and all their things. And, and as we talked, they found courage. She, she, her faith is so great, she was saying, this is so exciting. It's like, you know, before the Lord comes, we're going to lose everything. And she was excited. He didn't look so excited. He lost all his sermon notes. But they weren't worried so much about the stuff. As a matter of fact, they told me one interesting story. They said, 
you know, the things all just got charred, the house burnt down, but there were some stacks of papers that were so deep that the, the fire hadn't burned all the way through these thick stacks of tracks they had, gospel tracks. And the neighbors came back to go through their homes. They said, our gospel tracks, the wind picked up, it was blowing our gospel tracks all over the burnt neighborhood, talking about the end of the world. <laughs> she said, you know, we're gone and we're still witnessing. But we've seen some, uh, some tragic fires and, and uh, it was record-breaking. Thousands and thousands of square miles that were burned. You know, Jesus said there's going to be storms in the last days. Matthew 24, you know this. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll liken him unto a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain descends and the flood came and the wind blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And what's the rest of that? But he who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand and the storm knocks his house down. Now, you got the wise man then you got the foolish man. But you notice even though one is building on the rock and one is building on the sand, 100% get the storm. The Lord doesn't say, and if a storm comes. He says, when the storm comes. Now that's something, especially for the young people that are here right now, I want you to know, you're going to run into some storms. And we're not talking about weather tonight. We're talking about the storms of life. And some of you maybe have encountered some storms. There's financial storms. Happens when you go to college. There are relationship storms. There are health storms, uh, all kinds of storms that you might be going through. And the Lord sometimes allows these storms to get our attention. You know, one of the big questions I often get when these storms were coming one after another, people were saying, you know, why is God doing this? And I wrote a, a note and had some quotes in there that explained that um, God may allow it, but it's the devil that brings us destruction. God will sometimes withdraw his protection. It's God's angels, Revelation says, that are holding back the winds of strife. But when we reject God and his angels, then the winds blow. Even in the story of Job, it was the devil that went forth from the presence of the Lord and he brought the fire down and he brought the tornado. And these bad things happen and they call on an act of God. But God sometimes allows the storms because we learn through them. Now we're going to look at one particular storm in the Bible tonight. It's mentioned in the Gospel of John, Mark, and Matthew. They all share different aspects of the storm. First I'll read it to you from Mark. If you have a Bible, Mark chapter 6. Many of you have it on your device. Mark 6.45. Now just to give you the background, Jesus had performed his miracle where he fed the multitude and they were so impressed you know, there are 5,000 men, not counting all the women and children. So, you know, there may be 50,000, 20,000 people have been miraculously fed by this little boy's lunch. And they realize that the Lord has the power to feed an army. And, you know, that's uh, army marches on its stomach. And they said, let's make him king. And the disciples sort of liked the idea of let's, let's prod Jesus into being the Messiah. And they thought, oh, no, this is getting out of hand. I need to break it up. And it says immediately... He made his disciples get into the boat. 
he dismissed the crowd. He said, no, no, you guys get in the boat. Cross over to the other side. I will catch up with you. He sent them to Bethsaida. While he sent the multitude away, he dispersed the eager crowd. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea. Where was it? Don't miss that. And he was alone on land. It looked like they were separated from the Lord. And he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now, didn't Jesus check the weather before he sent them? For I fly, I check the weather. Once or twice I didn't. That's how I learned you always need to check the weather because you could get surprised. You get caught in a storm. Flying is very unforgiving if you have a problem up in the sky. And he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. And it was quite a windstorm because they would go two strokes forward and one stroke back. Now about the fourth watch of the night, it's about two to four in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed by them. It's like, okay, you guys are going to row, I'm going to walk. They were going the same place, he just thought he'd walk. And was acting like he was going to go by them. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and they were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and he said, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Now Mark is looking for words to explain. What would you think? I mean, how many times have you seen someone walk on the water? He says, greatly amazed, beyond measure, marveled. They're staring at him for a couple of things. One, walking on the water. Two, he gets in the boat and it's instantly calm. Now how did they end up in the storm? I want to remind you it says he made his disciples go before him. He sent them out. Do you think the Lord knew what was coming? He knew what they would encounter. He knew that they'd learn something through it. He sent them into the storm, into what he knew would be a headwind. Matter of fact, there's four things I want you to notice quickly about this. I'll back up and explain. He sent them into the storm. He saw them in the storm. He saved them through the storm, and he settled the storm. Now, first of all, he sent them into the storm. He made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side. You know, sometimes it's in the middle of a storm, you feel God's greatness and your smallness. Sometimes it's in a storm, you realize your helplessness. Have you ever been out in a hurricane? Back in 1964, I was in Miami with my dad, lived in Miami Beach, and they had Hurricane Betsy came through. Now, most of you were not alive um, back then. Some may remember that. And I remember my dad saying, we need to batten up the shutters of the house. Now, he, dad's house was on an island in Miami Beach. It was very vulnerable. But they built the house in, you know, when you live in that kind of country, they build all the houses where they got storm shutters. 
So he had them all in the garage, and he's bolting all these things, and I'm thinking, this is rather ominous. I'm only like seven years old, and I'm wondering, what's up? And then finally, we heard the terrible howling. The storm finally came, and I'm with my brother and my stepbrother, and we, we just heard it. It was screaming outside, and you can't see out the windows because they're all buttoned up, and even though it was daytime, finally, they said, they opened the front door, and we, they saw the palm trees, the coconut trees were laying over, and water was starting to build up in the streets, and my brothers, I was the youngest, they said, Dougie, go on out there. So we dare you to go out there. And so, you know, I, I couldn't stand a dare. So I was just like seven. So I stepped out the front door. I wasn't bad. It was just a little, you know, a little bit gusty. They said, no, go on, get out there. And my brother and my stepbrother are looking from the door. Go on. So I went out a little further. I said, what? They said, you're not really out there yet. Go on out there. And I, I knew what, I found out now what they were up to. They're trying to get me beyond the protection of the garage wall. And so I took a step out from beyond the garage wall, and I still remember getting knocked over like I'd been hit with, you know, a big wet mattress, and rolling down the street. And then I had to flatten myself out and crawl back to behind the shelter, and I tell you what, I felt pretty small out there in the hurricane and palms were blowing and the rain is just like pins and needles stinging your face and, and uh, I was crying, I was terrified when I finally got back. The next day we were riding our bikes down the street and the water was over our front wheels and just the, the Sunset Islands were completely covered. Our house fortunately was built up just above the water level but it was really creepy because any of the reptiles and the cockroaches and anything that couldn't swim all went up to our doors. <laughs> and so you'd open the door and it was a menagerie of terrified looking varmints. It was pretty spooky. You could fish right out the front door. It was, there really, we saw there were fish right there because it just went from our front door out into Biscayne Bay. But I remember how small I felt in the storm. And you get out of the storm and uh, you feel your weakness. Sometimes you're in a storm and you, you can't see. I've been caught, as I said a couple of times, flying in bad weather, and it's a it's pretty spooky feeling when um, clouds kind of drop down on you. You can't go down because there's mountains down there, and you can't go up because the clouds are kind of settling down, and pretty soon you just get stuck in the soup, and it's like you take a white can of spray paint and you spray the airplane windows all white, and you can't see. You have no reference where you're going. You know where you are. And all you have is your instruments to get you where you're trying to go. And you better know what you're doing with your instruments. But um, it's kind of frightening. By the way, we really wouldn't know where we were going if it wasn't for the instruments, would we? When you see everything happening, we're in a storm right now. He saw them in the storm. I find this very comforting. That even though he sent them into the storm, if they could only know that he was watching them they would have felt a lot better. Jesus wasn't worried. Does Jesus ever worry? Now, I think the Lord, you know, he, he prays for us, but God knows all things. He's always telling them, don't be afraid. Where's your faith? He saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. You know, in this life, you have to head into the wind. Being a Christian is like going up the down escalator. 
Now, most of you know that when you're in a shopping mall, you get on the up escalator to go up. If you just stand on the up escalator, you'll go up. If you stand on the down escalator, you'll go down. What happens if you walk up the down escalator? The security gets you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I've been caught on that before. If you stand on the down escalator, you go where? If you just walk, you kind of stay nowhere. You know how you get up the down escalator? You got to hustle. Being a Christian, you can't just stand there. There is effort involved in being a Christian. And you know, there's a message going out that you just believe and that's it. It's just like you're on an escalator to heaven. That's not how it works. You've got this nature in your body that is pulling you down. You've got the trends in the world that are pulling you down. If you want to be a Christian, the Bible says, we strive, we war, we run, we wrestle. If you don't agree with me, take it up with Paul. I'm quoting him. These are biblical terms. Jesus said, be energetic about entering the straight gate. And it's worth it, amen, being a Christian. But the idea this, you know kind of sloppy agape idea of what it means to be a Christian. Christian is a battle. You're, you're rowing into the wind. And this is what the disciples were doing. And Jesus sent them. And there's a message of salvation here. He sent them rowing into the wind. Because when they weren't making any headway, the secret was inviting him into the boat. Did you catch that? He saw them in the storm. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth so that he might show himself, um, show his glory, his power to those whose hearts are loyal to him. Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Did the Lord see them? He hadn't forgotten about them. And then the other point I wanted to make, he not only saw them in the storm, he saves us through storms. Storms are some of the best learning experiences. I'll be talking later in the week about how many people are converted through a storm. I'll tell you, there's some people that went through these firestorms in California. They started out atheists. They came out believers because they saw a lot of miracles that happened. You know, there's a, um, some popular beliefs out there that when the Lord comes that the church is just going to get raptured away because God doesn't want us to go through the tribulation. Most Christians believe and agree that there's going to be a tribulation near the end of time. Jesus is pretty clear uh, that there'll be a tribulation coming such as never has been since there was a time even unto the end. And you read in Daniel chapter 12, at that time Michael will stand up. This is verse 1. The great prince that stands for the children of thy people and there will be a time of trouble unlike any there ever has been. And many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake. That's a resurrection. So before the resurrection, great time of trouble. Most churches agree. Where there's disagreement, there's a lot of people say, well, the Lord loves us too much. He doesn't want the church to go through tribulation, so he's going to secretly rapture us up so we don't have to worry about that. It's not what I read in the Bible. The Bible tells us that the great tribulation is like it's the final perfect storm. It's the seven last plagues. Now here's my question. When the Lord saved the children of Israel from the slavery of Egypt, did he save them from the plagues or did he save them through the plagues? 
Weren't the plagues falling all around them? And in spite of that, God let them stay in Egypt during the plagues and He saved them through those plagues. God tends to save us through tribulation. Let me give you a verse on that. Acts 14.22 We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now, how do you ever recruit Christians with a, a verse like that? That doesn't sound like a good marketing program, does it? By the way, it does not sound like a good marketing program to say, if you want to come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross. But that's the truth, friends. Jesus said there's going to be storms. Now, I told you that the storm's going to come to believers, but the storm comes to fools. So you just got to decide, do I want to go through the storm as a saved person or a lost person? You're going to have storms. And everybody's in trouble in the last days. You're either in trouble with God because you follow the devil or you're in trouble with the devil because you follow God. So you've got to make up your mind who you want to be in trouble with. Isn't that what it boils down to? So there's going to be storms. But God saves us through the storms. It's through these trials that come. Someone once described flying as endless hours of monotony punctuated with a few moments of terror. And... Uh, but you learn the most during those moments of terror. You know, we learn through pain. Uh, there's this place where I stopped my four-wheeler once. I was riding through the woods. It's at our ranch up in California. And this spot, it's off the trail. I stopped there once and I got stung badly because I parked on top of a nest of yellow jackets. And first, when you get hit, you're wondering, what was that? Actually, now that I think about it, I wasn't driving a four-wheeler. I was driving a bulldozer. And I thought someone shot me. And um, I looked around and thought, who did that? And then I got hit again. And then I finally, I got stung several times before I could climb off that thing. I had to run into the house. And I left this bulldozer idling on top of a yellow jacket nest. Well, I thought, oh, I can't leave it there all day. And so, even though it was summertime, I put on a snowmobile suit <laughs> and I put on a ski mask. I put on goggles over the eyes where the ski mask goes. I put on gloves and my boots because I had to venture back boldly into the bulldozer. And before I went out, I took a picture of myself because I thought, this really looks dopey. <laughs> I did a selfie. That was before you had them on your cameras. I'd use a mirror. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, yeah. And, um, but you know what now, even though that's been years ago, I don't ride by that spot on my four-wheeler without thinking, those yellow jackets are dead and gone. There's been no nest there for years. But I remember that spot because I remember the pain that I felt on that spot. And God's wired us for survival that we seem to learn through pain. Isn't that right? Sometimes he teaches us through the storms, through the experience, through the fear, through the loss of these storms. God saves us through tribulation. Joseph was not saved from his trials. God saved him through his trials. And he did something great with him because of his trials. Job was not saved from his trials. God saved him through his trials. And Noah was not saved from the storm. God saved Noah through the storm. And so 
you need to batten down the hatches. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to run into storms. You want to make sure you're building on the rock. And you will get through the storm. Uh, you already know the end of the story, but did the disciples survive the storm? You know why? Jesus was in the boat. Do you need to be afraid of the storms? Not if you invite Jesus in the boat. So, he invited them, they invited him into the boat. First they were afraid, and the wind ceased. Kind of like when they threw Jonah overboard, it got very calm. The wind ceased. Now, there's one version of this story I haven't read to you yet. The account in John and the account in Mark are very similar, but there's something that is in the account of Matthew that's left out of the other two. I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 14, verse 25. Matthew picks it up, same way as Mark. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went walking to them on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. Cheer up. It's I. Don't be afraid. How could he tell them cheer up in a windstorm? Because he said, it's I. Don't be afraid. The Lord was there with them in the storm. Now here's the part that's left out. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, command me, Lord. And Jesus said, come. You know, there's not too many prayers Jesus said no to. Have you ever noticed that? Even when Peter said, Lord, I'd like to walk on the water. Jesus said, go for it. <laughs> the Lord wants you to do exciting things as a believer, right? And when Peter had come down out of the boat, now, you know, that must have been something. Because, uh, you know, you're out in the boat is rocking and pitching with the waves and he's trying to hang on to the side of it. It's a big enough boat for, you know, 12, 15 people. And um, he steps on the side and he feels something firm under his feet. He's fished that sea all his life. He knows there's no coral reef there. And he puts his other foot down and he's looking at Jesus out there in the stormy sea. And he ventures off to walk towards Christ. You know, I remember hearing a story about a hunter that wanted a new hunting dog. And he found this dog that was advertised that he could run and fetch fowl so quickly that he wouldn't even sink in the water. It looked like he walked on water because he would run so fast he never even sank in. Sure enough, he tried out the dog and, and he shot a duck or a goose or something. He landed. The dog ran out, ran back, never sank in. Thought, I can't believe it. I got a dog that walks on water. He couldn't wait to show his friend. He wasn't going to say anything. He was just going to let the dog surprise him. So they went out hunting one day and they're down in the blinds and they're waiting. They're doing their duck calls and pretty soon a little flock of duck flies and they shoot a couple times. They hit one. Duck lands in the lake. He gives the whistle. The dog takes off, runs across the water, runs back with the duck. His friend looked. He didn't say anything. They're riding home later that day and he said, uh, you noticed my new dog? I said, yeah, I did. I said, do you notice anything unusual? I said, I did. He said, that's really something, isn't it? 
I said, yeah, I guess your dog can't swim. <laughs> so Peter gets out of the boat and he's got his feet on the water and he's looking at Jesus and thank you, he's walking towards Jesus and as long as he keeps his eyes on Christ, he's doing the supernatural. He's doing the impossible. He's walking on water. Have any of you ever tried that before? <laughs> I have skied barefoot. It's not quite the same. And it really hurts when you fall because you have to go really fast when you're skiing barefoot, which means if you fall, you don't just sink in. You skip along the surface like a stone for a little while. <laughs> One of our boys broke his ribs falling on the water. Skiing barefoot, it, it uh, can hurt you. Normally, you can't walk on water. Being a Christian is something like walking on the water. It's impossible without a miracle. It requires an act of God giving you His Spirit to be able to live a godly life in a wicked world. See, I think you're better off telling people the truth and don't give them any false illusions. Being a Christian is impossible unless you keep your eyes on Christ. Now you read on in the story and this is where Peter made a mistake. It says that um, he got out of the boat and he started walking on the water to go to Jesus. As long as he had his eyes on Jesus, as long as he was going to Jesus, he was doing fine. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, what did he do? By the way, do you know you can't see wind? You can see what the wind does. You might see the trees laying over in the wind and you might see the waves mounting up in the wind, but you're not really seeing the wind. You're seeing what the wind does. And he took his eyes off Christ and he's looking at the waves. He's looking at the spray and he's thinking, man, I'm, I've been a sailor all my life. What am I doing out in a storm like this? No life jacket? This is going to be fatal. And his faith began to sink and when your faith begins to sink, you begin to sink. And it all happened when he took his eyes off Jesus. You know how we get in trouble trying to live the Christian life? It's through our focus. The key to living a victorious Christian life, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, seeing then, verse 1, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight in the sin that does so easily beset us and let us run with patience that race with endurance looking unto Jesus. I think some versions say fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. How can you run the, the race? How can you fight the fight? The only way you can do it is you've got to keep your eyes on Christ. Now that, a lot of you are thinking, it's a metaphor I hear all the time. What does that mean to keep your eyes on Jesus? Well, it's not that complicated. You become like what you look at. What are you looking at? You become like what you look at. So many people were converted by looking in the Bible. Zacchaeus saw the Lord. He was transformed. He wanted to see Jesus. That's why he climbed the tree. Paul wanted to see the Lord. Well, Paul saw the Lord before he wanted to see him. He was converted. Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. He was converted. Thief on the cross. He saw Jesus lifted up. 
he was converted. They were quite literally looking at Christ. So how do we look to God? His Word. He reveals himself through his Word. I was converted by reading the Bible. There's power in the Word. And so when you spend time in your prayers and you lift up your eyes to God in your prayers, in your devotions, in what you do with your time. You know, there never has been a generation like this generation that has as many screens as we have today. I remember waking up, I was on an overseas flight and I took that pilgrimage to the back of the plane and all the lights in the plane were off because it was the middle of the night and on my way back um, every chair had a screen. It's kind of an eerie look when you're in the back of one of these jumbo jets and you see hundreds of screens stretched out before you in front of every seat and some people were sleeping a lot of people fell asleep watching stuff so their screens are still going some were awake couldn't sleep and they're still watching and they're all watching different things because they got like a programmable they can choose what they want to watch channels and and slowly walking back to my seat looking at everybody's screens you can kind of tell where everybody's head was I didn't see any religious programming their heads were in the world and the screens on the airplanes aren't much different than the screens in your pocket most of what people are looking at these days it's not good food why do you eat that which is not good we need to hunger and thirst after righteousness amen you become like what you look at I remember hearing about a pilot up in Alaska he was flying cross-country out in the middle of this vast wilderness and there was some tundra he flew over he was up pretty high and he flew over an Olympic insignia it wasn't quite perfect but this Olympic insignia you know what he got the five intersecting circles out in the middle of nowhere now sometimes people will paint their roof near an airport to advertise to the planes or in a city they might have something on the roof so that you know you can see an ad he's thinking why would anybody put an Olympic insignia out here in the the tundra of Alaska hundreds of miles from civilization he thought what is that he thought this can't be right so he descended and he turned back and he finally figured out what it was it was very sad a big grizzly had somehow got his head stuck in a five gallon metal can trying to eat something out of the bottom of the can but the, the can was stuck on his head and the grizzly couldn't see where he was going and the man said, he, the doctor who was flying that told the story said the grizzly looked like he'd been wandering for days with a can over his head in circles so that he had worn five circles in the leaves and the grass on the tundra out there. Kind of sad. Describes a lot of people out there in the world. They're just going in circles with a can over their heads. They just can't see where they're going. If you don't have Jesus to go to, you're walking blind in the storm used to read about this guy. He was one of the great uh, early daredevils, tightrope walker. They called him the Great Blondin. And I think he was the first one to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 
And he did it without the safety net. He did it without the, um, they got a cable where if you fall, at least you're on the safety cable. And, and uh, several times he did it. And the falls, I don't know, any of you ever been to Niagara Falls? <clears throat> I have. But what you see today is not half of what it used to be because they've diverted a lot of the water for hydroelectric now. But the falls used to be even more magnificent. You could see the spray 10 miles away. And you could hear it thundering. And the idea that this guy would go across the mouth of the falls there on a cable, people would say, how in the world can you do that? The wind is whipping below you and the spray is billowing around you and, and the cable is wet. And aren't you afraid when you see all of this? He says, no, I don't see it. What do you mean you don't see it? He says, I don't look at it. He said, before I began going across the falls, he said, I affix a silver star on the far side at the other end of the cable. He said, once I take off, he says, I put my eyes on the star and I never take my eyes off the star. And I put one foot in front of the other. One foot in front of the other. And that's kind of what it's like in the Christian life. Don't worry about what you're going to do 10 years from now. If you give your heart to the Lord, people start worrying about what about the temptation tomorrow? What will I do then? And so they never make the commitment. You're never going to know the power of God unless you get out of the boat and put one foot in front of another. Fix your eyes on Jesus and you keep walking towards Him. That's where the power is. You can walk a supernatural walk when you do that. All things are possible. You know, the, um, the Christian walk is a walk of faith. You've got to believe one step after another that you're going to be making it you can't get distracted. Jesus said, seek ye first. Make it your priority. Telling hunting stories. Another hunter had a dog. Heard he was a great hunter, but he found out that he had been uh, tricked. Took the dog out in the woods, put him on the scent of a bear. And the dog started off barking furiously after the bear, but then a deer hopped across the trail. So he started off after the deer. He lost the deer, but then he smelled a rabbit, started off after the rabbit. Meanwhile, the hunter's trying to catch up with his barking dog, and by the time he caught up with him, he was growling down a mouse hole. Started out for a bear, ended up with a mouse. It's kind of how it happens with a lot of young people. We've got great ideals about what we want to do for God, and then we get distracted with little things. It worries me that... Um, especially when you're on a university where there's so much happening and there's so many things. I'm thankful that this is a Christian university where Christ has made a priority and in the middle of the week, you people would come to hear about the most important thing. You've heard that saying before, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's Jesus. Nothing is more important. What profit is it if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? And the devil is going to help you get distracted chasing after a lot of good things. But you, go, you need to go for the big game. You want to be like Christ. He needs to be the priority in our lives. Amen? You know, I read a statement one time that was written by Dr. Bob Moorhead. Moorhead. It's in his book, Fellowship of the Unashamed. He describes what it means to be a Christian, to have that resolve, that tenacity, that commitment. And he writes... I am a disciple of Jesus. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of His. 
I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence, I learn by faith, I love by patience, I live by prayer, and I labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let go, or slow up till I preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops. And when he comes to get his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. There's a lot of measured compromise out there. People need to say, Lord, I will follow you. I will follow you wherever you go. Like Ruth, your God will be my God. Your people, my people. Where you go, I will go. There will I lodge. Where you bury, there I'll be buried. God, do so to me and more also of anything but death. Kind of like a marriage vow. Separate you and I. That's what it means to be a disciple. Jesus said, follow me. He said, they forsook all and followed him. I don't think the world's yet to see what God can do in this generation if young people in particular would take up the challenge the way the disciples took it up back then and say, I want to be a real Christian. I'm tired of fooling around. And don't look at the hypocrisy in the church. That's nothing new. It's always been there. That's not going to be your excuse in the judgment. There's always going to be compromise. There's going to be a lot of people in churches you could point to where they say, well, they do this and they did that. That's not your standard. Jesus is your standard. He's inviting you to follow him. People are going to let you down. He will never let you down. You need to fix your eyes on Jesus. You know, in all of this story, it says Peter took his eyes off Christ and he started to sink. There's some good news, though. When he started to sink, he said, Lord, save me. Now, if you're sinking in a storm, you don't have to memorize Psalm 119. It is the shortest prayer in the Bible that I know of. Uh, there may be one other that just says, Lord, help. But this is one of the shortest. Three words, Lord, save me. Can you say that? Say it with me. Lord, save me. I may make an appeal before we're done tonight, and I might ask you to say it again. It's not hard. He wants to save you. Jesus came to save. He came to save the lost. And as soon as, Je as Peter prayed, what did Jesus do? Did he say, Peter, I gave you a chance. You wanted to walk on water? Serves you right. You took your eyes off me? Now you're going to get what you deserve. 
Or if Peter tried to pray a long prayer, he would have said, Lord, save me. He would have been drowning. He didn't have time for long prayer. He needed help right away. How long after he prayed before Jesus sent the answer? <laughs> At the last moment. You notice Jesus probably waited till he's like, his nose was just out of the water. Peter, I just want you to experience the sea. And he grabbed his hand, <laughs> pulled him up. Doesn't God sometimes do that? Waits till the last minute. <laughs> Someone said, uh, God's never late, but he's seldom early. Children of Israel, you know, you wait until you get to the Red Sea and you got all these angry Egyptians that are armed, breathing down your neck, and when you're ready to despair, then he parts the sea. So God saves you from the storm, but it may not be exactly when you expect. And he brought him back to the boat. Now, we give Peter a hard time, but you know, I think we need to speak up for Peter a little bit right now. We think about his taking his eyes off Christ, and when we take our eyes off Christ, we get into trouble. How many apostles were there in the boat? Twelve. How many had the courage and the faith and the gumption and audacity to say, Jesus, I'd like to walk on the water too? Only one. I think we need to give. And who did Jesus pick to sort of lead out at Pentecost? The one who had the audacity to speak up could be chosen. Even though he made a mistake. God is wanting people who will attempt bold things for him. And you may fail sometimes. But I've often said I'd rather do something wrong than nothing very well. At least you're trying to do something, right? You know how many evangelistic flops I've been connected with? <laughs> but I've had a couple of ideas that worked. I'm not going to tell you about all the mistakes and all the times my office said, Doug, there's a thin line between inspiration and hallucination. <laughs> but you know, you've got to try. Peter at least said, Lord, I'd like to try to come to you in the storm. He said, come. He got out of the boat. He was willing to step out for Jesus. The Lord, I think, wants more people like that today who are willing to step out for Jesus. I heard a story. I remember reading it in a devotional book years ago. So the event probably took place 45, 50 years ago. A boat with a couple of families was off the coast of South Africa and they were fishing. And um, oh, they were just, you know, eight or ten miles from shore and they got caught by some bad weather. And in the process of the waves mounting, some waves washed over into the boat. It somehow knocked out the engine. They lost power. They had no radio with them. And they began to drift further out to sea. Well, during the night, the storm got bigger. Finally, it capsized the boat. And this dozen or so people, a couple of families were together, were thrown into the sea. Most of them, as I recall, were able to get back to the hull of the ship and hang on to the capsized boat that continued floating. By morning, uh, they were pretty desperate because they realized nobody knew where they were. They were drifting further away. One girl in the group, she was 17 years old, her name was Natalie. And um, she was on a swim team there in South Africa. And they knew that she was the best swimmer and she knew it. She said, look, I think I can get to shore. Even though the storm had died down some, it was still very rough. But it was really their only hope. And so 
she had to make a decision to leave her friends and family that were still clinging to the boat and start heading out in the ocean in what she could see was the direction of the coast but it's like 10, 12 miles away. So she took off swimming and she swam hour after hour and several times she'd turn to breathe between strokes and she'd inhale seawater from the waves so that she'd choke and gag and sometimes vomit and then she'd have to continue swimming and I should mention this is the part of South Africa where the water's a little warmer and uh, it's notorious for great white sharks she began to sense she wasn't alone and her feet had been cut when the boat capsized they weren't seriously injured but they were bleeding and she looked back and she was certain she saw shadows and she swam on and on and she was a Christian she remembered that promise in Isaiah chapter what is it 42 3 it says when you pass through the waters I will be with you and she kept proclaiming that promise when you pass through the waters I will be with you finally she got to the, another wave hit her and she had a choking fit and she was totally exhausted and, and she looked and saw that there were distinct dorsal fins that were circling her and she was praying she said Lord please don't let me go slowly I don't want to have him take an arm and a leg and have me die slowly please let it be quick and right about then she lost consciousness the next thing she heard it was the honk of a boat horn and she woke up and a little bit in the stupor she saw a boat approaching from a distance that had somehow seen her and she realized that something was holding her up she looked around and saw there was a pod of dolphins she didn't know if they drove away the sharks or if that's what she had seen following her but when she began to sink they actually held her up and the sailors that rescued her said we saw the dolphins leaving when we came and they saved her life when you pass through the waters I will be with you and she got the word to the authorities and they found her family and they were rescued but I often think about the courage it would take for a 17 year old girl to leave the boat and go swimming off into the sea you know it takes courage to say I'm gonna follow Jesus I'm gonna be his disciple no matter what anybody else does no matter what the world does it doesn't matter about the compromise of anyone else I want to do God's will I want to be saved I want to know that I'm living the life that God designed me to live and doing his will and you just gotta to come to him just like you are Peter said Lord if that's you command me to come to you you know why Peter could walk on water because he had the command of the Lord behind it and if God commands you to do something he will give you the power to do what he commands inherent in every command of God is the power to do what he's asking you to do it doesn't mean it, it may be walking on water it might be parting the sea if he tells you to go under the sea he'll give you scuba gear whatever you need to do what God tells you to do he will provide for you he's a loving father he's not going to ask you to do the impossible because with God how much is possible you can be a Christian yes you can don't believe the lie that you can't God would never ask you to do something you can't do and you'll never be happy unless you are because you'll never have the real happiness that you're designed to have unless you're in the middle of God's will
So I'd like to just close by having a prayer with you. And before I pray, I would like to ask if there are some of you here and you've prayed about making a real commitment of your life to Christ. You may have plans for your life and you're afraid how that might disrupt things. You just have to ask the question, whose plan is going to be better? God's plan for my life or my plan for my life? Trust me. Trust the Lord. He says, I know the plans that I have for you. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Good plans for a future and I hope he's got good plans for you. You can trust him. I mean, when God found me, I was running around up in the mountains naked in, in a cave and eating out of a garbage can. And of course, anything would have been an improvement, right? Back then. <laughs> but I, I had no idea the plans that God had for me. He's got plans for you. And he'll activate them, but he won't do it against your will. Jesus said to Peter, come. And he stepped out of the boat. And if you are willing to step out of the boat and say, Lord, I want to be a real Christian. Would you stand with me? Do it, not because everybody's doing it, do it because you mean it. And then when I'm praying, you may in your own heart want to pray that simple prayer and say, Lord, save me. And then believe that whoever comes to him, he will receive. Dear Father, oh Lord, we're so thankful that even though we may... Uh, get off in the storms and be feeling like we're rowing into the, into the wind, that when we receive you into our boat, we are at the destination. Lord, I pray that you'll be with each of these people here. There's a, a broad spectrum of needs represented, but we all need Jesus. That's one thing we all have in common, especially if there's any young people here that are they're wavering in their decision to follow you. Help them know that you brought them here. Perhaps they're watching online and you have big plans for them. I pray, Lord, that you'll just bless them with your spirit, help them to be willing by your grace to step out and know that you promise that you'll be with them through whatever storms they may encounter and you'll see them through. Thank you, Lord, for the good news that you take us to the other side. We're looking forward to your coming. We want to be ready. Pour out your spirit on these meetings, on this school, and we thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.